It's Monday, September 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, gents. Hey. Good day, Chris. Good day. We got, uh, I'm not going to lie, like 24 hours ago, I was thinking about this episode and I thought, boy, I don't really know what we're going to do. Just going to scrap it. <laughs> There's not a lot out there. Sorry, and, fools. And fortunately, once again, the news fairy showed up. Um, we've got music business. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with the big merger up north, Merger Monday, once again, holding its title. Yeah, Canada's doing work for us. Canada's getting week. it done for us. Thank you, Canada. Potash Corp., which is the world's biggest crop nutrient company, and Agrium, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Ag- Agrium, Agrium yep. which is the largest farm retailer in North America. These two companies are combining to form a $36 billion agri giant. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Agribehemoth. Um, we'll get to whether or not this is a good thing for humanity. Is, is, this a, <laughs> is this a good thing for shareholders? Is this a good, I mean, these are two companies that you have some familiarity with. Yeah. When, was this deal in the works? Um, so it's kind of announced a few weeks ago. Um, most people didn't think it was actually going to be approved, and it, sure enough, this morning it was. Fun fact: uh, in 2010, BHP Billiton offered uh, 38 to 39 billion for Potash, and now the combined company is going to be less than that. So shows that's a you really fun fact. Actually, it shows you, you know, say like serves you right. You should have taken when it was good. That's right. Oh well, they tried. Uh, the Canadian government said it didn't give enough benefit to Canadians. So oh wow, they got yeah. So now we're looking at a company, a combined company that's less than what BHP was going to pay for one of them uh, six years ago, um, and a lot of that has to do with the the Russian Belarus cartel that controls a significant amount of global potash. They broke up in 2013, and prices just have never recovered since then. Um, so now, if you're a potash shareholder, I think you're you're looking very favorably on this because you get access to the retail segment, which is traditionally less cyclical than being a 100% commodity exposed business. So I think that the potash shareholders who will own about 52% of this merged company um, definitely hit it big here. Agrium, a little on the fence. I think that that company is run very well. So maybe giving access to their retail um, stream of business from the potash mines will, will help that business as well. Maybe lower some uh, some upfront cost on the commodity side. But um, you're gaining some commodity exposure if you're an Agrium shareholder, and um, right now there's seems to be only upside after prices were like nine hundred dollars a ton in 2008, and they're I think Potash realized about one hundred fifty dollars a ton in the second quarter, so pretty steep drop off there. So one one can imagine that there's a lot of upside to prices, um, especially as these two combine and maybe um, control a little bit more of the market. This is one of those things though that I think makes. Some people nervous when you know in, in in for different reasons than if for example two mobile phone companies were combining yep. or something like that. I mean, I mean, I think there's a natural inclination to at least take a moment to pause and reflect on any big merger. But this is one of those things where, okay, what is this going to do to my food supply? Sure, like, I think that's where that's where a lot of people go when they see something like this. And then you've got Bayer and Monsanto um, probably joining forces, and I think Dow Chemical and Syngenta, I think, is or Dupont, Dow and Dupont um, joining forces. So if you're worried about your food supply, I might be more worried about those two deals because that's that's seed genetics and things like that. Whereas these two companies, it's a pure fertilizer mashup, so you're not really looking at. Um, any GMOs here where you would be with Monsanto, Dow, and DuPont. Um, but yeah, fertilizer is a key ingredient to, to growing crops, and 
potash produces all three of the key fertilizers. You've got the potash, uh, nitrogen, and phosphate. So it is a very, very big deal. Um, but for all those folks out there that are worried about GMOs, you might want to look at the other two deals uh, to be a little bit more concerned about your food supply. If you're worried about your food supply, you just do what I did over the weekend. You go to the store, you come back with a honking big bag of candy. I mean, that, <laughs> that Halloween candy is already They're out not there growing that in the force. field. And it, I mean, you get like you know the twelve pound bag of like Kit Kats and like uh, Twix and Snickers and stuff. It's all out there for you, Chris. You just you just got to go pick one. All that goodness is just right there. <laughs> I mean, hey, it's, it may be September, but it's October in my heart. The New York <laughs> the New York Times is reporting that Pandora and Amazon are both planning to launch new music streaming services as early as next week, uh, reportedly charging just five dollars a month, which would undercut the likes of Apple Music and Spotify. If I have this right, Jason, uh, Amazon's service would actually be $10 a month unless you own an Amazon Echo, in which case and then it would be $5 a month. But this, this um, we don't really talk about the music business all that much, but it does seem like, in the same way we've seen uh, the battle for the living room and, and television merging, you know, broadcast television, cable television, Video gaming, movies, streaming—all of this stuff converging. We we have, to a smaller degree, in terms of the market opportunity, we have also seen this with the music business as well. Sure, yeah, and I think the music business, to me, I I would avoid the music business as a pure play investment, um, simply because I mean, from what we've seen to this point, there's no real competitive advantage. I mean, whether you're Spotify or Pandora or Whatever else, uh, I mean, there are no real switching costs. There are no sort of there's no pricing power, and I mean, I think we're seeing that sort of play out here, and that these these services are all sort of competing on offering a little bit of a, a lower cost uh, service that maybe attracts more customers. So at the end of the day, you sim- you basically kind of have all, all these services were very similar, um, and and then it all boils down to cost, and if they're all priced essentially the same. Then why would you pick one over the other? So I think from a pure play perspective, I, I kind of it's not it's not a very attractive space. I mean, it's just you're stuck sort of in this perpetual negotiation with musicians. And I mean, at the end of the day, the musician is the one that gets screwed here. I mean, I would hate right. to be a musician in today's day and age. I mean, unless you are committed to touring and supporting yourself through touring, I mean, there it's very very difficult to make a living as a musician. And so I think when you see something like Amazon, for example, well, they're just leveraging an infrastructure that that they've already got in place, right? I mean, the Echo, I think, has been just a a phenomenal success for them. I think uh, early on there were probably some questions as to really how could this thing potentially work, but as we've seen, um, I mean, I mean, even offering our our daily takes on the market with their their flash briefing. Nice plug. Uh, it, well, thank you very <laughs> much. Um, it, it, but I mean, it, the the Echo serves so many different purposes. And for me, as a Prime member, I know that I have access to this vast catalog of music that I can play whenever I want. And then it all boils down to kind of exclusivity, right? It's it's a matter of which platform has what music. And that's really difficult to identify. And typically, people aren't going to just like collect music streaming apps so they can have access to everything they want. It's just easy enough to buy whatever music you want and then have it in your library stored and ready to play at, uh, at the spur of the moment. So, uh, I think it makes sense for Amazon to, to figure out new ways and new offerings here, because it doesn't cost them a lot to do it. Um, they have vast resources at play, whereas something like Pandora, Pandora was really what helped get this all kicked off, right? I mean, they, they were kind of the first name in this space. 
but but we can even see now they've kind of fallen behind because they've never really allowed uh, customers to take sort of that next leap and really ask for specific songs uh, and build playlists based on those specific songs. It costs a lot of money to do that, and and when you have to do that, certainly from an investor's perspective. Uh, that that is not nearly as attractive. So for me, you know, it makes sense that they're all doing it. Uh, but when I look at it from the investor's perspective, um, it, there there isn't one of these platforms to me that that stands out and looks looks like a great idea. There is some optimism, at least in terms of today's reaction in the market for what Pandora is doing. Just I mean, when you look at shares up about five percent, we'll see if that continues when they actually end up launching this thing. But I think that. Yeah, this this is one of those things where the advantage for you know Apple and Amazon and any any other sort of deep pocketed company is well they've got the deep pockets. Sure, and, and the hardware that a lot of people already have. Whether you're Apple and, and you know people are using the iPhone, or whether you have an Echo at home. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for already having that hardware and being able to sort of marry that service into uh, the infrastructure that's already out there and in play. Um, and, and and again, the deep pockets that come with with big companies like those are just uh, invaluable. And one key line from the CNBC article you sent around that remind me if you've heard something similar before, but Amazon's ambitions may pose more of a challenge to the existing services. Uh oh, yeah, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> well, I mean, they've well, done I mean, it to books, they've done it to DVDs, they've done it to, I mean. Music is next. You don't want to go out there and be forced to compete on that playing field because you already know what you're getting yourself into. So I think a lot of people don't even don't even bother. Well, and just I mean, Jason, we went back and forth a little bit on this this morning. I mean, to me, this isn't even so much Amazon versus Pandora or Apple versus Spotify. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're looking for who is the loser in this. It's the radio stations. I mean, if all you have to do is, and they are publicly traded, look at Cumulus, look at CBS, trying to find a buyer for their radio division, not finding one and saying, you know what, we're just going to spin this off into its own IPO. Um, there are a lot of publicly traded radio companies that have just gotten hammered over the last 10 years. And streaming music is is no small part of the reason why. Well, Amazon might be doing a little bit to help radio stations because you can call out any radio call station around the country and it'll play it directly for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even to your point though, I think terrestrial radio is one that has really witnessed a lot of challenges. And I mean, as a, as a radio fan, I mean, I I love terrestrial radio. I think it's great. Um, I mean, as a Sirius XM radio subscriber, I love that too. And I love the app that comes along with it, where I can basically listen to whatever I want whenever I want. So I think ultimately this kind of goes back to what we talked about before with Disney and the video stuff is that it all boils down really to distribution at this point in the game. You need to have the content and then if you have the content and you can focus on distribution, Sirius XM, they're doing obviously very well because Howard Stern has been a very pivotal uh, pivotal uh, point of success there. I mean, that's been I think the main reason why why that that property succeeded at this point. But with that said, now they have this huge installed user base. Um, they obviously have stern stuff in there for like the next 12 years so they can now start to sort of go outside of that universe and come up with new ideas and new ways to 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 bring uh new subscribers in and to keep uh subscribers around but i mean the interesting thing is like if you think about terrestrial radio has terrestrial radio has lost its luster for two reasons right it's number one 
linear fashion, and, and they're starting to tackle that with, with those radio shows offering podcast form as well, but also the advertising. I think a lot of people just get sick and tired of the advertising. But it's not to say that SiriusXM doesn't advertise either. I mean, you listen to SiriusXM, right. and they advertise all the time. It's just uh, possibly a little bit less, uh, and, and it, it maybe is seen as a more attractive platform because you're you're not beholden to the same sort of language barriers, for lack of a better term. I mean, you can say kind of what you want there without really um, feeling the heat from anybody. So, I think there's probably something to do that. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. A couple of listeners pointed out, uh, referring to the conversation we had last week about, uh, and it was with, I believe, David Kretzman and Aaron Bush, where we were talking about the iPhone 7 event. A couple of listeners writing in to point out that the lightning-connected earbuds and adapter are included with the iPhone 7. Um, and per our conversation about Formula One racing and the acquisition by Liberty Media, email comment from Ian Richards, who writes, Formula One racing has a worldwide audience of 425 million. The Super Bowl's worldwide audience was 160 million. In what sense is Formula One racing a quote-unquote niche sport? <laughs> good point. Yeah. It's a good point. It's uh, it's niche to me, yeah. but it's clearly it's not niche to hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, question from Andrew Wilkinson. I've been listening to your podcast for several years now and I've learned a ton. Thank you so much for the hard work and the great content. My question might be kind of odd. What business is The Motley Fool as a company actually in? How does The Motley Fool as a company make money? What are the various revenue streams in order of largest to smallest? Are you trying to audit us, Andrew? Is that <laughs> so what this is? If we were a publicly traded company, it would be so easy to find all That's of that right. information. Order. Exactly. I'll tell you what the smallest is right here, the podcast. <laughs> hey. um, exactly. Um, so, we've got three basic businesses here at The Motley Fool. And I'll, I'll, I'll take this one. Um, uh, you think of it this way. Think of the the three legs of the Motley Fool stool. Um, one is the fool.com part of the business. If you go to fool.com, which is uh, our free website, um, all the content that's on there. Uh, under that umbrella, I would include podcasts, our newspaper column, our books, etc. You've got the membership business, million dollar portfolio that Jason and others work on, uh, stock advisor. Uh, rule breakers, all the way up to Motley Fool One, and then obviously all the international services like Stock Advisor Canada that Taylor works on, um, services in Canada, in Germany, Australia, the UK, Singapore. Did I leave anybody out? I don't think I did. No, I think you got it. I think that's everyone. By the way, speaking of Australia, Uncle Joe Mager going to be in studio later this week. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, I saw him earlier today. Oh, is he in town? He's already? in town all week. Yeah. Nice. So get you know if you. If you he's just... staying at where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the third uh, the third part of the stool is uh, full funds and wealth management, and we we have the the full funds guys uh, on here from time to time. So that's that's the Motley Fool in a nutshell. Question from Mark, who writes in: Procter and Gamble is apparently spinning off some of their company into another company, which will then be absorbed by a company called Cody. C O T Y. Shareholders are being offered several options on this move by Procter and Gamble. We can convert all of our shares, some of our shares, or none of our shares to the new company they are creating, which will then later be absorbed by Cody. Uh, both the spinoff and the subsequent absorption by Cody will remain under the umbrella of Procter and Gamble. My inclination is to simply is to simply stay with my main shares of Procter and Gamble and forego converting any of the new companies. Do you have any thoughts on this? Thanks. Um, <laughs> Cody is, uh, if I understand it, Cody is in sort of uh, 
beauty products. Beauty and makeup. Yep. Um, probably a competitor to Ulta Salon on some level. I don't. I don't know that Cody has the. The stores that you can go in, um, the the bricks and mortar stores and sal- and actual salons, but certainly in terms of the products that they sell, I think they are a competitor to Ulta. Yeah, I think I think the fundamental question you need to ask yourself and then answer is: Do you have any interest in owning shares of Cody, which is a publicly traded company, a market cap of a bit more than eight billion dollars today? Um, but yes, this deal essentially means that you have the option to tender. This is for Procter and Gamble shareholders. You can either tender all of your shares, some of your shares, or none of your shares. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to participate. Um, but you are getting um, essentially one dollar and seven cents of Galleria common stock for every dollar of Procter and Gamble. Now I say Galleria. Galleria is then converted into Cody. This is all done in order to make it the most tax efficient uh, sort of spinoff possible. And so again, you have to ask yourself: Do I ultimately want to own shares of Cody? Um, and in looking at this personally, for me, I don't know that it's a business I'd be all that interested in owning. I mean, it's profitable, it's cash flow positive, that's good. But if you look at their top line, certainly it's not growing. Um, it is basically owned by JAB Holdings, which owns around eighty percent or so of the shares outstanding. So you're you're going to be beholden to more or less what they want to do with this anyway. Um, and I'd volunteer that if you own Procter and Gamble shares, you probably own them for much different reasons than you would own Cody. That's the part I was going to right. right. I to. mean, they are two very different, very different companies. And, and uh, Cody is in an interesting market space. Um, but but you made reference to Alta there, and personally speaking, I would be more interested in Alta. Alta is a company we actually have on the watch list in MDP um, because beauty products. By and large, it's a very attractive market opportunity because I mean they are as sure as the sun coming up, um, and as the father of daughters, I I, I, I see it every day. Um, but again, I don't think Cody is necessarily from from the from the fundamentals of the business. I don't know that it's necessarily the most attractive way to play it. it seems like a lot of that on the balance sheet. I'm not exactly sure the catalyst that takes this business forward. Um, so I, yeah, I think that. You want to probably look at this and say, well, if I own Procter and Gamble, I own it because it's a nice defensive holding. It's got a good dividend yield. Um, if you're trying to maybe get in there and play a little bit of an arb uh, arbitrage, uh, where you're getting a little bit of of a discount there on those Cody shares, you probably want to think twice about this because this is not a secret. I guarantee you, the streets wise to it, and those those pricing that pricing can can adjust very quickly. So I, I don't think I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze, so to speak. Um, so if you own Procter and Gamble shares, I'd be more inclined to hang on to them. I don't own Procter and Gamble shares. I'm not telling you what to do, but but when I look at Cody as a business, it's not one that I'd put at the top of my list as one we'd want to have, uh, you know, in MDP or in my my por- my personal portfolio. Well, and Taylor, I was I was thinking that w- one of the things that has I w- I would argue the the most significant change in Procter and Gamble. In the time that we've been doing this podcast, starting back to the beginning of 2011, is how Procter and Gamble as a business has methodically shed the brands that it owns, mm-hmm. and it has become a more focused company, just in terms of the business that they're running. When we first started this podcast, they had a bunch of food brands under the under the Procter and Gamble umbrella that they proceeded to shed over the next few years, and this this appears to be one more step in that direction. 
Yeah, it certainly does. And as a shareholder over the long term, you can't fault what they've been doing because they've delivered. Um, so if you've been one of the shareholders and seen what they've been able to do and drive value and continue to pay a dividend, um, I think you have you have faith in them that maybe they're getting rid of this for a reason and, and stick with the P&G shares um, because the thesis is still there. They're not shedding a critical part of their business. So um, if you are a shareholder, then you're, you're still invested in the Procter & Gamble that you thought you were just without one little niche portion of it. All right. Taylor Muckerman, Jason Moser, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.